Hello and welcome to Matt Bites episode 113. I'm Mike Thomas and I'm here with my co-host Elaine Giles. And in this episode, hot shots, magic bullets and sitting ducks. But first, we heard from the lovely Jonathan, didn't we? That's Mummy Isaac's little lad Johnny I, if you recall. He was thrilled. A new show. Yep. A little bird, for which read Twitter, told me that Johnny I and Siri have been colluding. I believe so. Let's just say next week was mentioned. And against all odds. It's next week. It's a miracle. That as well. He mentioned 10 shows in 10 weeks. His actual words were, bring it on. Did we actually mention consecutive weeks? Great to hear from you, Jonathan, anyway. Glad we were able to keep you company on your journey home. Now, with another visit to the studio so soon, you might have to get on the road again just to listen to the show. And progress on the bare front with Graham. Yes. Hmm. Apparently, neither Siri and Lady Siri or Mike and Elaine are appropriate as both the bears are boys. Now, I feel we shouldn't let gender naming expectations preclude naming them in our honour, though. Graham, however, has an alternative. He's contemplating... Now, brace yourself here, folks. Yahoo and Bing. Words fail me, Graham. I'm pretty speechless myself. Graham, result, you demand. I suggested a poll with the MacBiters. First option, Barry McBearface. So take that as a challenge, MacBiters, and send us your suggestions ASAP. We'll be sure to pass them on to an ever-increasingly nervous Graham. And moving on, more news from Chromeland. I'm fast reaching the incandescent point with Chrome. The latest builds of Canary have changed how the app responds to Command and Q. Doubtless in an attempt to save muggles from themselves when they try to quit the app with open tabs that they don't want to lose them. You now have to hold Command and Q down for a few seconds before it does anything. Now, back to bears. Just like the three bears, if you don't hold it down long enough, nothing happens. If you hold it down too long, you close not only Chrome, but a second app as well. Just right, and you actually manage to close just Chrome. Not happy then. Are you kidding me? Surely that goes against Apple's desired guidelines. Shouldn't all apps behave the same way? I think that's shocking for accessibility. Uh, There must be some folks, I've got friends, clients, they've got very specific accessibility needs and they, they just wouldn't be able to do that. I tested what would happen if you had Command and Q programmed in an automation app. So in my case, I tried Keyboard Maestro. So I I programmed it so another key or a double mouse click or something else sent the command, command and Q, to Chrome. It does nothing now. So for people who use, you know, control surfaces like I use to edit audio, but Mm. maybe they're in a wheelchair and and they use it for accessibility purposes, well, that's not going to work. It doesn't do it. So I'm sitting there with it thinking, how could I make it so it sent a hold down? No, couldn't do it. So no alternative then, but get used to it. Oh, I fixed it. You're going to share. If you don't open Chrome, you don't need to quit Chrome. I'm telling you, Firefox is looking more appealing by the minute. And I keep telling you, I'll believe that when I see it. No, seriously. After much complaining, I enjoyed that. They were persuaded to add an option to stop the madness. So you can now 
The default is that that behavior is turned on, but you can actually turn it off. So a quick command in Q will close it. Didn't do anything about the hideous interface, though, yet. Just leave that there. <clears throat> Hopefully an update next time. Now, as we mentioned last time, we heard from McJim. McJim sent us a fantastically erudite piece I'm entitling Apple State of the Union. Here's what McJim has to say. I'll begin by saying the following is purely my personal thoughts and worries about Apple and where they're heading with them. I have no insider knowledge or any other connections to Apple. Since Steve Jobs died, there's been a lot of speculation and rumours, with many saying Apple is doomed and will not survive without him at the helm. But so far, this has proved to be untrue. But that doesn't mean there's no reason for us fanboys and girls to be worried about the future of Apple. For some time now, I've been saying that macOS and iOS will become one and will be Apple's only OS for computing devices. Yes, I hear you saying Apple has categorically said they will not do this and even made this clear with a big no being shown at the last keynote. But I have to say, look back at the things Apple have said that they wouldn't do, but did. And now we see iOS apps will be coming to Mojave. Part of the trouble is due to the loss of direction caused by Steve's death. But that isn't the only reason, as much more is down to his successor, Tim Cook, whose direction of Apple through his choices of management and products has changed Apple for the worse. It all began when he brought in John Browett, the former Dixon's boss, who lasted six months before getting the chop. That didn't help in many ways, but it was the hiring of Angela Arendt that, to me, was the beginning of Apple's problems. It's never been a cheap option buying into the Apple ecosystem. I've parted with a good few pounds over the years since I bought my first Mac, the Mac Mini G4, and I've owned a succession of Mac computers and iOS devices since then. I currently own an iPad Pro 9.7 inch, an iPhone 7 Plus, an Apple TV 4th Gen, an Apple Pencil and a MacBook Pro 13 inch Retina model. But in recent years, everything has rocketed skyward in price. When I bought my MacBook, I knew I was paying a premium to own this device over the equivalent Windows machine, but I gladly did so. Now I would have to part with at least an extra £1,000 or more to get its equivalent today. That's around £2,500 plus. It also used to be more expensive to buy the iMac and less so to buy a laptop, but that's no longer the case. Now we find the Apple stores are slowly becoming designer boutiques along the lines of a Burberry store due to the changes made by Angela Arendt. Gone is the genius bar where we knew we'd find someone to talk to about any problems experienced with our devices. Now we find ourselves lost when we arrive in a store looking for someone who might be able to help. Previously, the old way was to go to the genius bar where a specialist could be found who would have all the tools and equipment needed for diagnosing problems, dealt in a degree of anonymity as those around us were also there for similar reasons. But now we mingle with people buying or drooling over the shiny toys, or people in to play about with the devices or use the free Wi-Fi. Hardly a nice experience. Other problems are now appearing above the parapets that give me concern. Reliability has taken a real nosedive, not only with software systems but also in the quality of the hardware too. Yes, we can expect problems, and I've had my share too. My 15-inch MacBook Pro developed problems and ended up being replaced with a new machine. My current MacBook Pro 13-inch had a screen replacement due to the anti-glare coating peeling off. But the list of things going wrong has in my mind increased in the last few years, either due to bad design, bad manufacturing processes, or software issues. 
Looking at the professional side of Mac, Apple has dropped the ball so much so that they are backpedalling as fast as they can to appease the professionals. It all began with Apple deciding to no longer support the professional photographer with the dropping of Aperture. Then we saw videographers and music professionals being affected by redesigns or dropping of apps that many used resulting in them walking off to the dark side and buying Windows computers. The only software they could use was on the Windows platform. Then we had the Trashcan Mac Pro. Need I say more? Now we have the latest, where we now have a laptop, the MacBook Pro 15-inch, that is in stratospheric realms in terms of price. Yes, if you're a professional, then I guess money's no object, but even then they're finding it hard to swallow. So where is Apple heading, or at least where are they trying to make the ordinary Mac user head? Well, it's to iOS and the iPads. It's pretty obvious that they want non-professionals to move over to iOS, and for the professionals to be on macOS, but also to pay for it too. You could say that's a good idea, as most Apple users only browse the web, read and send emails, watch YouTube videos, etc. So really don't need a Mac to do that. And the iPad is the device for those purposes. But I edit images and use macOS apps to do that. Yes, I can also use my iPad Pro, and I do image edit on that device. I hear you say, so what's the problem? Well, the problem's simple iOS apps such as Snapseed do a great job editing images, so much so I use it on a regular basis. But there's no way to catalogue or save to a library in iOS as far as I can see. Yes, we have photos, which works well enough for most folks, but it eats data, which can fill up my iPad. But with my MacBook, I can save to an external hard drive. Admittedly, I can get a SanDisk pen drive and that will plug into the lightning port, but it's not ideal. Apple seems to have dug themselves a big hole they can't get out of, and Microsoft is filling that void with their products. The Surface Pro tablet devices are similar to an iPad Pro, but run a full OS, which means I could have Adobe Lightroom and Skylum Luminar 2018 to edit and catalogue my images on. You can add the external hard drive for storage and use a mouse and pencil too. And with the launch of the Surface Go tablet, they might just have come out with a real iPad Beta 2 as it runs Windows S, but is upgradable to a full version of Windows 10, allowing full apps to work on a portable device. I'm even tempted to get a Surface Go or a Surface Pro rather than go for an iMac to work along with my MacBook Pro 13 inch. Hell will have frozen over if that happens. He's not wrong, you know. I thought McJim was spot on. Yes, there has been what Apple fanboys will write off as doom-mongering. And no, they're not down to their last billion yet. But I've got to agree with McJim regarding the direction they've taken in recent years. And the macOS-iOS merging, I don't believe they're categoric no either. Me neither. But maybe they can get away with saying merger because they might never say it's merged. But it actually looks as though macOS is just going to wither on the vine. Tim Cook and his team have made a lot of very questionable decisions. The Browit farce was astounding to us in the UK because we'd seen it all at Dixon's. And none of us would have given him even a second glance in the search for a new head of retail. I mean, not even a local corner shop. I would never have entertained him. And I remember being astounded when I heard the news. It, it was hysterical for us punters to be proved right within six months as well. If we were right about that, Tim, we could just be right about the rest of it too, you know. Traditionally, Apple Kit was sold at premium price, but the, d the difference was it was premium kit. And of more significance to me was that it, it was kit. I don't enjoy a trip to the Apple boutique now, where they've 
just seem to have the main thing on offer, 3,000 different watch straps. All the colours in all the sizes. But nothing for a geek to be bothered with. Uh, and I can get a far better range of options from Amazon with free next day delivery. And frequently do. Quite. I've found our last few visits to an Apple store to be an experience I've no desire to repeat. We were pounced on by clueless sales staff. And without exception, they had always had to pass us on to someone else. They seem to now have job specialisation to the nth degree. Now, regarding the reliability that McJim mentioned, most of my kit, when I sat and thought about it, has had to be replaced at least once. My last iPod Touch was replaced twice within a week. My iPhone 6 was replaced. Let's not talk about the Apple Care from Hell, where it took five iMacs to get one that was working satisfactorily. An Apple software strategy is just laughable. That's without binning the printing service. Talking of bins, as for bin 1.0. Do you remember them announcing that? Because I do. And I looked and I thought, OK, this is the joke one, isn't it? You know how sometimes Steve Jobs used to bring something out and tell you that that was it and you were horrified and then he brought the real thing out? I remember them announcing it and I remember saying it does look like a bin in the, from the local um, shopping mall. Yeah, that's exactly, you know, and it's it's not changed. Now, I can't wait to see bin 2.0, but that's not the point. I'm thinking now with what they've done, and Jim's pointed that out, whatever they do with it, it's going to be astronomically expensive. And in terms of value to price, no. So it could be amazing but it's still going to be incredibly overpriced for what it is. And yes, I do use an iPad Pro for many tasks, but it doesn't replace a laptop or a desktop. I have said this all a million times, and every time I do, I come up with an even better example than the one before. But it's like, I have a dining table at home, but I also have dining chairs. They are a complement to each other, but they are not a direct replacement for each other. That's why the iOS-only fundamentalist mafia and their iOS-only battle cries will never make sense to me. It's often about workflow, and I know that the software can improve the overall iOS experience, but the fact is it's not there yet. And as McJim points out, there are serious pain points. There are, and it looks like it's going to be pretty cold down under, and I don't mean on Australia. I think hell will be freezing over. As I said in the last show, I'm also seriously looking at getting a Surface Pro, although I'll probably wait until they announce the new specs. Now, one thing I read said it'll be round, round about the autumn, which will do me. We're only talking a couple of months away. Something else I read said it's going to be mid next year, so we'll see. But uh, join the club, Jim. Surface users of the world unite. All we can hope is that Apple do indeed have a plan. Although the way it's going, I'm with McJim. It's looking as though they don't have a clue, never mind a plan. But huge, huge thanks to McJim for sending us his thoughts to share. It's always appreciated and it's always good to hear from you. We love your well-considered thoughts, so we want to know what the rest of you think. Are you keeping the faith? Is the lure of kit like the Surface Go or the gorgeous Surface Studio tempting you towards the dark side? Do let us know. Yes, please do let us know. And hot on the heels of McJim's displeasure with Apple is your displeasure with Apple. 
I doubt anyone has missed the news that Apple are binning their App Store affiliate program. But just in case someone is blissfully unaware, I'll summarise. Apple had an affiliate program in place from the launch of the App Store and it paid 7% commission until last year, at which point it dropped to 2.5. It was then announced that as of the 1st of October this year, they're binning it completely. Is that a big deal? It certainly is to some who've built their business model on it. So I'm thinking appshopper.com and there's other services like that. They provide a really useful service. I always check the price history of an app before I purchase it. Often developers claim they've reduced it to its lowest price ever, but AppShopper has a full price history to keep them honest. If you think about it, without that, you're at the mercy of whatever they say. How would you know any different unless you had personal knowledge of it? Now, these sites, their income is generated by clicks through to the App Store for purchases. Obviously, the App Store's Apple's playground. They can do what they want with it. And they clearly are doing That doesn't make it right, though. Their statement's a long-winded way of saying, we don't need you anymore. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. As I was considering this Apple move, an email arrived from United, Manchester United, the the second love of your life, I hope. Um, And I thought there were huge parallels with the Apple move, because for the last few years, United have had a bag policy in place. For this to have any meaning, consider me in the 90s. I used to take a large pink, I know, the shame, sports bag with all my stuff in it to each game. Mm, I remember it well. Refreshments, radio, portable TV, copious batteries. What can I say? I like my home comforts. Didn't put you off asking me out, though, did it? Or was it my portable playground that you liked? Don't say a thing. It's a trap. You, of course. Anyway, point being, it's a free country. Now, if I choose to carry half a TV station with me, I could. It was most appreciated, wasn't it, by Sir Alex Ferguson, no less, who spent the majority of many matches glued at your side, asking if there were any scores from the other games. So much so, you got a mention in his autobiography, I seem to remember. I did. You're right. So just as well, today's increasingly strict rules weren't in place back then. Anyway, a few years back, The bag policy was put in place. No large bags allowed in the ground. A free bag crash was provided. Move on a few years and every year the size of the bag that you were allowed to take into the match was reduced. Thus meaning more bags needing to be deposited in the bag crash. Now, United had managed to manipulate a monopoly into place, if you think about it. Want to go to the game? Got a bag bigger than a postage stamp? Seriously, the limit's now 8 inches by 6 inches by 2 inches. And yes, they measure them. Then you've got no choice but to deposit your bag in the bag crash. It's inconvenient, but it's not a deal breaker. Fast forward to this season. They have now implemented a charge for the bag crash service. Fair enough, you might think. They've got to cover expenses. Fine. £5 per bag per game. Now, all the profits are going to the MUFC Foundation, which is a charity arm of United. But that pushed all my buttons. That's an enforced charity donation again. I may want to give to charity, and I do. But United? I don't think so. I give you enough money as it is. Seems the way to make money these days is to build a monopoly, get folks to rely on the service, and then change the rules of the game. Fleece folks who have no choice but to play in your playground. 
Mm, that's harsh from Apple coming the week that they've reached the trillion dollar valuation, isn't it? Exactly. They're clearly intent on making their way to a two trillion dollar valuation. And it's dangerous to us underestimate the value of a strong, vibrant, supportive community, though. Yeah, the search in the App Store is shocking. And will they rebuild? Will the rebuild in uh, Mojave make it that much better? I doubt it. You can't fake true crowdsourced excitement for a product or a service. If that worked, we'd all be using Microsoft phones right now. It's, it's poor Apple. Very, very poor. And United, you know better. In fact, you're, you're even worse. You're even worse. Should we move on? We, we, please, before I go into a meltdown. <laughs> News of our progress with our calendars. Oh, yes. If you recall, we'd left our intrepid past selves on the brink of the great calendar move of 2018. Now, the final decision was made whilst watching a cricket match. Hmm, cricket. Marginally more riveting than watching paint dry. Uh, but actually, it was a faster experience than I expected. It was a 2020 game at Lancashire and I enjoyed it. So I sat and I contemplated the last dozen times we'd been forced to do the old calendar shuffle. And I was soon plotting how many backups and trial runs would be needed to ensure our success and, more importantly, a complete continuity of service. Now, running through the options away from a computer meant by the time I returned to the warm and comforting bosom of MacBytes headquarters, I had a plan. Now, before deploying any plan, I needed the mother and father of all backups made. In terms of the actual transfer, you have a few options. But all of these start with the same safety net, though. Create copious backups. So from either BusyCal or Calendar, the, the Apple Calendar app, use the export options and you can save it to a calendar, individual calendars, or a calendar archive for a complete backup. Now, although it would have been far easier, given the number of calendars I had, to go for a full backup, and I did create one just in case, belt braces and then 14 more pair of braces, I did choose the option to make separate backups of each calendar as well. As I say, there were a lot of them. Uh, we had separate calendars for each different area of focus. And also, I created a separate calendar when I just wanted certain items on my calendar to be a, a different colour. So I had 47 calendars <laughs> and 42 of them were actually mine. The other five were shared from Mike's. Um, you look after the United fixture calendar. There was a couple of social calendars, but I take care of almost everything else and share what's needed with you. Now, wondering why so many? Well, as I say, you have to have separate calendars to have different colours for events. And if you want a certain range of events to be easily toggleable, to toggle the visibility on and off, separate calendars the way to go. Shared calendars needed to be separate from other private information. So I may have a calendar and I could maybe put some appointments on it. But the rest of the stuff on that calendar is private. So I separate it out so one whole calendar can be public. Calendars that are shared with me are separate by default and they just add to the number greatly. So this transfer needed to accommodate all of that. Care was needed. So option one bearing in mind we were heading off to Google Calendar, was to use the backups that I'd made in the preparation stage, all 47 of them, 
In the browser in Google Calendar, it allows you to import the exported files, they're ICS files. Now, sometimes you'll get an ICS file and it'll be a single appointment, but also ICS files can contain multiple appointments or entire calendars, and that's what these were. But it doesn't have to be an ICS, you can also import CSVs. Now, that's important for triaging content via Excel. So maybe you've got some appointments you want to add in from unsupported systems. So you can do it from a CSV file. It worked like a charm, but you also have available desktop apps with similar import features. It isn't your only option, though, to, to do that import in that way. Second option, using a desktop app. Now, I looked and I had BusyCal, Apple Calendar and Fantastical. Now, for those to work, you need to create an empty new calendar on the new service. So Google Calendar for me. That needs to be done via the web. Now, you tried that, didn't you? And you were surprised you couldn't do it through any of the apps. Yeah, it came up and it told me you've got to do this via the web. Well, BusyCal implied to me it could be done directly from BusyCal because there's a menu option and it's active. But as soon as I tried it, it told me I couldn't do that. And then I needed to head off to the web. Fantastical only has a menu option for creating new calendars on iCloud. So BusyCal, take note, you know, don't have an option there that can't possibly be used. Now, once you've got your new calendar, you drag and drop the contents of one calendar onto another. So within your desktop app, you can have the calendars from your old service, the empty calendars from your new service, and just drag and drop them across from one calendar to another. It's long winded via the day, week or month view. It was much easier because I tried it in the list view in BusyCal. So that was us getting going, wasn't it? But the great transfer happened this way, which was um, part one was the first import. And what I decided to do, I'd opted to go via Google Calendar in a browser. The first import went well, alarmingly well, too well. This was going to be a doddle. Famous last words. Quite. My original intention was to test the whole thing with one single calendar for at least a week and then transfer more over the coming weeks. Mm, didn't end up like that, though, did it? No. The first transfer went so well, I decided to do the lot there and then. Which was when the trouble started. Indeed. Transfer part two, hitting a wall. Oh, how does that happen? If one calendar selected randomly works, so should the rest. Now, the content of these calendars goes back 12 years and the failing calendar actually had fewer appointments than the calendars that was working fine. So what was going on? Now, the first calendar that I transferred took a few seconds to load into Google Calendar via the web page. Even calendars with a huge number of appointments going back those 12 years, and I, and I did a quick look, 5,000 plus entries, only took a couple of minutes. The first calendar that failed just sat there displaying the import dialog box for ages. No worries, though, I thought. Plan B, go via the desktop app instead. Same problem. By now, you were hyperventilating. Yeah, but it was our most important calendar. It's got all our shared stuff on it. I was unfazed. I've done this calendar shuffle thing that many times. I think I could do it in my sleep. I figured, look, it's a simple matter of deleting the receiving calendar and starting again. 
I did mention those gazillion backups, didn't I? No appointments were going to be harmed in this. Yes, there's famous last words again. No matter how many times I tried with this particular calendar, though, the most important one, if you recall, it just wasn't having it. So I pondered. Was it the number of appointments? Was it the file size? Were there any attachments? I googled. Suspicions confirmed. It was the file size. So what I found said, this error usually happens when the file is too big. Google Calendar works with files that are one megabyte or smaller. If your file is too big, export a shorter date range from the original application. You can also separate the file into smaller files if you're comfortable manually editing CSV or iCal code. But why? Why was this calendar so much bigger than the others? Apparently, I had been hoisted by my own petard. In BusyCal, I'd started using the image field. I'd created tiny icon-sized images indicating if I was in or out on any given day. Now, obviously, I've got a preference for never leaving the house. Far safer that way. Too many red arrows in a week and I'd start reining it in. Ring fencing time at home. So it was working great, but that's what was causing the problem. The solution was to remove all my lovely and very useful calendar icons before re-importing the calendar. The file size reduced once I deleted these things and there weren't that many of them. Seriously, there weren't that many. I've only been using that system for a couple of months, but the file size reduced from four and a half meg to 500k. I was confident. Well, I was more confident at that point. So I attempted the import again. Within seconds, it was all done. Now, I was somewhat peeved I'd lost a useful feature, though. Google Calendar in a browser doesn't show the image field anyway, which was when inspiration struck. What if I used an emoji to indicate leaving the house? Skull and crossbones? Smiling pile of poo. I opted for something less potentially embarrassing. There is a red dot emoji, and I put it at the end of the appointment title, and it solved the problem. It can be seen everywhere on the web, the desktop apps, iOS apps, even on the screen of our Amazon Echo show devices. It was perfect. So what next? Transfer part three, success. All told, it took less than two hours to transfer 12 years worth of calendars from iCloud to Google. However, into every life, a little rain must fall. In other words, the snagging. Now, on the transfer, there were only the issues we've mentioned, the graphics and the file size problem. But then, of course, we got to work with our shiny new calendars and hit some other snags. Initially, I was checking everything on the web and it all looked satisfyingly well. But it was when I was checking Fantastical on the Mac, I noticed a problem. It seemed to be some of the calendars missing, missing completely. And on checking, it was all the calendars shared with me from Mike. So I was having so much fun on the web, I thought I'm going to ignore this problem until it actually needed dealing with, by which time you were involved. I was. The following day I was at work and I'd just finished delivering a training session and I needed to visit the toilet. So picture me there sitting on the toilet, got my iPhone out. OMG, TMI. Pass me a bucket. I dread to think what he'd do with a bucket. Look, it's the only time I get any peace. So there I was, sitting on the toilet, looking at my calendar, using Fantastical. And I realised that our main shared calendar wasn't listed. Now, 
as we said earlier, it's probably the most important one. You own the calendar, but other calendars that you own were displayed. And this one wasn't there on the on the, the calendar app either, the built-in calendar app. So, finishing the toilet. Did I say I was on the toilet? Only got a few to, times. Uh, got back to my desk, did a bit of Googling, found the answer. If you go to google.com slash calendar slash sync select, you don't need to write that down. We'll stick it in the show notes. It shows you which of your calendars are currently synced to mobile. And there's no tick in the box against that calendar. So I added a tick. I checked fantastical and all was well with the world again. Actually, it's worth mentioning that again, fantastical gets this bit right. The sync select link is actually provided a live link in the account section of the preferences dialog. So when you select your Google account, it automatically appears in the space below and it's even clickable. Like I say, you're straight there. Nice attention to detail. Busy Carl, take note. That wasn't actually the only problem that I had, because once I decided that I'd make more use of Google Calendar in a browser, I found a problem adding events from ICS files. To give you a bit of background, when I book myself onto an event, a webinar, for example, or somebody books me to deliver some training, the email that I receive confirming the booking often contains an ICS file. An ICS file is just a plain text file that contains event information. And usually this file is generated automatically by the system that's being used for the event delivery. So think WebEx or GoToMeeting, etc. Now, currently what I do is I download the ICS file to my desktop, open BusyCal and drag the ICS file into it. I then select the calendar. It pops up a dialog box in BusyCal uh, and I select the calendar that I want the event adding to. Then the information in the ICS file is used to create the event in the calendar. And this is the way that I've always done it. Now, I recently discovered that if I'm using Gmail in a browser, which I do most of the time, with a single click, I can add the event file to Google Calendar. And this happens in one of a few ways, either directly, I've no idea how it works, it just does, or via a third party service. And those third party services need permission granting to them once. The whole point of going that way is it would save me downloading and then importing the ICS file. Now, when I tried it with a WebEx event, it added it to the calendar, but some of the information was missing. And the missing information should have been at the end of the description field. And the thing was, it was critical information containing the login details for the webinar. It's as if it can only import a certain number of characters. And adding events to the calendar in the same way from other systems is fine. It's WebEx generated ICS files um, that are dragged into BusyCal. They're fine. Now, I thought that I'd have to continue using BusyCal or the calendar app. But as you said, ICS files can be imported into Google Calendar via a browser. So what I did is I tested it by downloading a WebEx generated ICS file from an email, then imported uh, that into Google Calendar for a, via a browser, and that worked fine. Do you know WebEx need to get their act together? All you need to know is what the URL is. They choose to stick a 5,000 word essay in there and tag the URL on the end like an afterthought. So 
they need to seriously think about what's needed because you add enough of those to your calendar and all that text will add to the file size of a complete backup, won't it? It will, yeah. So that's where we're at. Transfer done, stress testing underway. Next step, honing and improving the system. I'm looking to simplify. Uh, I need to reduce the number of calendars for a start. And that is this week's project. We will update you on progress there next week. She said it. She said next week. Now, as if fighting the iPhone's lack of port lunacy last time wasn't enough. Major issues with system preferences, security and privacy this week. It all started with Camtasia. You may recall my challenge from Mike to use a new version of Camtasia to edit a real video. More on that next time. But I didn't even get far enough to actually use it to record stuff, much less edit it so far. And it's not Camtasia's fault. It needs permission to install a system helper. And it requests access to the security and privacy dialog box. It also displays a shiny and enticing allow button. All you need to do is click it. At times, you don't even need to unlock the system preferences to be able to click it. Amazing. But I'm there. I'm installing Camtasia and disaster struck. After successfully installing and configuring it on the first Mac, it threw its toys out of the pram with the second. I could see exactly the same dialog box with exactly the same option. I could even click it, by which I mean the button pushed in. But it refused point blank to accept the click. The allow button just sat there, mocking me. Not wishing to be dragged out of my happy place, I took a deep breath and decided to leave it. I could always work round it, I told myself. Audio Hijack and Loopback are your friends when it comes to audio. I could make this work without the component. But? It got a whole lot worse. I came to install Google Drive file stream app. Now, that's critical to affix to the black hole uh, with the, that we've talked about before and we will talk about again. I will explain the new system in a future show. Suffice it to say that failure was not an option when it came to installing the Google Drive file stream app. It wouldn't have it. It did exactly the same as it had done with Camtasia. It sat there, allow button taunting me. I tried everything, uninstalling, reinstalling, making the usual sacrifices to the tech gods. Nothing, absolutely nothing. I tried another machine. I dug out the venerable 2012 MacBook Air, parked it on the desk right next to the iMac. iMac behaving itself, by the way. It was the Mac in the studio that was having a hissy fit. So I downloaded the Google Drive file stream app onto the MacBook Air, installed it, got to the allow button, clicked it with great trepidation. It was fine. Absolutely fine. What was going on? So I thought, hmm, I'll try another Mac. This one resides in the bedroom. Don't ask. Run out of room for tech in the office? Since you ask, yes. So I logged into that one. I downloaded the Google Drive file stream app. I installed it. I see the allow button. I click it. It does nothing. Mm! Just for fun, I try Camtasia and its system component. No joy with that either. By now, it's after 3am and I am not a happy bunny. I am entertaining myself by mentally making a list of things I'm going to do to the Apple programmer behind this debacle. And while doing that, I do the Googles. Many, many tales of woe, but no solutions. 
Suggestions included do the sip dance. Oh, joy. A PRAM reset. The recommended cure-all. A reinstall of macOS. That is so not happening. When I spotted a post on the official Apple forums, the problem was similar to mine. Not identical, but very similar. And the first answer to it was so far removed from addressing the poor guy's question, it was laughable. But it did explain what the problem was in my setup. Brace yourselves, this one's an Apple classic. You can click the button until you're blue in the face, but it will never register as a click via remote desktop. What? I know security is paramount, but for the love of all that's holy, tell me that. Scream it from a mountaintop. Have it tattooed on a prominent place on Tim Cook's But at least let me know. I'd have walked next door and clicked the flaming button myself, but how was I to know they deemed it wise to cripple remote desktop in that way? How are any of us to know that? Once I did know, the problem was solved in seconds, as I did just that. Click the allow button with the mouse attached via Bluetooth to the actual Mac in question. When did system admin by sheer guesswork become a thing? I was not impressed at all. No, you weren't, were you? No. You were luckily asleep. Mm, best thing. Although I was creeping around the bedroom to, to in the dark to find the mouse to actually turn the <laughs> turn the screen on with the Mac so I could click the button. Really? You didn't tell me that. No, you were sleeping peacefully, so I thought best leave it. Mm. You know, sleeping dogs and all that. <clears throat> anyway, our MacBytes 10 OS today is uh, OS 10.9 Mavericks. It was announced on the 10th of June 2013 at WWDC 2013, and it was released via the Mac App Store on the 22nd of October 2013. So what was new? Was it exciting? Mm, we shall see. Battery life improvements, finder improvements, mm. other improvements for power users. Promises, promises. Continued iCloud integration. Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. More Apple iOS apps came to OS X. Mm. It was named after the surfing location in Northern California, and it was the first version of OS X releases named after places in Apple's home state. It also marked the point when OS X major releases became free updates from the Mac App Store. They also announced on the day it was released that um, there would be free updates for life on its operating systems and business software. Um, this was the one, you know, where the menu bar and dock were made available on each display. Mm. Were we thrilled? No. Mm, no. Uh, it also added the ability to use AirPlay compatible devices such as an Apple TV as an external display. Has anybody ever done that? Other than once to try it, which, yes, I'll admit I did. But, you know, in anger, would you do that? No. No, me neither. Mission Control was updated to organise and switch between the desktop workspaces independently between those multiple displays as well. Always great fun for you. Mm, I turned it off. Do you know, that, that OS marked to me the start of the trouble with Windows management. It still feels clunky. I have managed to persuade it to, to use it to my benefit, though. Um, the app switcher for me shows on the screen with the dock. 
And because the dock is on the left hand screen for me in live sessions and screen recordings, I use the main Mac screen. So because the dock and the app switcher appear on another screen, it looks as though I'm seamlessly moving between apps. So that has actually worked out quite, quite nicely. Um, it also in introduced AppNap, the thing that sleeps apps that are not currently visible. So any app running on Mavericks can use this feature. Do you use it? AppNap. Mm. I, don't e I don't even remember that being demoed in the keynote. However, it is a cool name. I'd honestly forgotten about it as well. I can only assume it was sandwiched between copious games demos. Uh, the idea is it automatically compresses data from inactive apps when the memory gets to critical mass. So because of that, you've got enhanced uh, energy efficiency, reducing CPU usage. Now, they claimed over 70%. The logic of that being it would allow MacBooks to run for longer periods of time and desktop Macs to run cooler. <laughs> yeah, right. I've got a fan sat on mine permanently. My current Mac, and it is top of the range, it just runs the fans at full pelt way, way more often than the previous one. And I know yours does the same, doesn't it? It does. Yeah, so that went down really well. It, the thing is, it all sounds grand, doesn't it, when you read it? Yes, if only it worked that way. Exactly. Um, server message block version 2 became the default protocol for sharing files instead of the Apple file thing. Now, it was intended to increase performance and cross-platform compatibility. Another one I didn't notice. Does that mean I didn't notice it because it just works? Because I'd sure notice if it wasn't working. Mm, I'm sure you would. Yes. I did that, you know, for my MCSE thing. That's my Microsoft certification. It's all a bit of a hazy memory now. Um, yes, there were some more skeuomorphic designs laid to rest with the texture in calendars and the legal pads in, in notes and the, um, the book-like appearance of contacts. Do you remember that? <laughs> I remember that one. <laughs> that was a big misstep, that was. Well, well it went in this one. And one of those weirdy things they added, native LinkedIn sharing integration. Another one. No, never done that. I actually said in the last show that when, when we talked about Mountain Lion, I've never used the integrated features to share to any social network. I understand what people would tell you to do with it. But be honest, who posts something to a social network and then doesn't sit there for at least five minutes waiting for somebody to put a like on it? You, you don't just blindly post it. I mean, plus the fact. Right. When I say what people tell you, it'll be these productivity gurus who tell you to just, you know, broadcast your social network. Don't actually go there and then end up spending 30 minutes looking at pictures of cats. But it's too dangerous these days. Can you imagine posting something and there being a bomb somewhere? I mean, you'd get crucified for it. So, no, never, 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 never. It can be disemboweled, can't it? Not just turned off, actually. You know, game-centred. It's my new verb, that, to game-centred. You know, when I said to you, if you click no to the um, legal agreement, it just vanishes. Mm. Literally, puff of smoke disappeared. Awesome. Yeah, I want to game-centre that one. Get rid of it. Um, now, they added, in terms of this, an instant reply to notification centre as well. Now, for that to work, websites had to be allowed to hook into Notification Centre, <laughs> like that's happening anytime soon on my machine. No. Um, it also displayed a summary of missed notifications before the machine is unlocked. 
The traffic light close, minimise and maximise were made subtly brighter. I vaguely remember that, you know, because which was the one where they were made flatter? Was that this one or a later one? Can't remember. I think I think it could have been a later one. But, but I noticed these subtle changes. Now, um, in terms of apps, Finder got tabs at last. Now, that's something I use quite a lot. Me too. Didn't think I would because I've got um, Pathfinder. But I do. So much so, I added a system-wide shortcut to merge all the open windows and tabs into a single window. I'll never get over the fact that it does it backwards, but it does it. Um, also added full screen support and document tags. The thing that surprised me was I was very surprised at some of the stuff that was removed from the finder. Now, I don't use a trackpad other than to edit my audio and video. And I use that left handed and the mouse right handed. But they took away from the finder pinch to zoom and swipe to navigate history. But both of those options were supported anywhere else on the OS, just not in Finder. Mavericks also introduced the iBooks app, which allowed the purchase of iBooks from um, your desktop for the first time. Least said about that, the better. And Night Mode, another feature I have never bothered with. You? No, never used it. No. They added the Maps app, um, basically taking it from iOS. Could just be me, but my first thought is still to open Google Maps in a browser. Me you? too. I, I totally forget Apple Maps is there. <laughs> the only time I inadvertently deal with Apple Maps is when I'm on my iPhone and I have a travel folder and both of them are in it, but it's not on the first screen. So I pull down and I tap, you know, I type out Maps and the icons are so similar that I have been known on occasion to tap the Apple Maps thing instead. But that's the only time I ever, ever see it. I think I could be doing more with Google Maps than I actually am. But I do find Google Maps is very, very accurate with the traffic. So it, that, it's just in my, my brain, map Google. Simple as that. Um, this was a classic. The calendar app was now able to add Facebook events. Yep, crickets. Nope, never done that in my entire life. <laughs> you? No. <laughs> do you ever get the feeling you're too old for an OS? Oh, well, if you will fish a price it, what do you expect? Um, it added the estimate for time travel to an event as well. Can't honestly, I'm sitting here shaking my head with, nope, never done that either. You? No. If I could be certain that it was taking into account local conditions, I might be more likely to use it. But I'd be concerned because with my Google map, it actually the first thing it tells me when I open it on iOS is what the traffic conditions are like locally. So it's a matter of trusting it. That's the problem. Then we got into browser wars again with uh, Apple claiming that Safari was faster than Chrome and Firefox. And they introduced that top sites thing. Ever use that? Um, I think I might have done once. I think it's still there. Sort of. But it's not something that I'm... I can't probably... This could be because I've got more than one Mac. I'd like them to look the same and I don't know if it's synced and all the rest of it. So No, no, not thrilled. Uh, they added that sidebar as well. So you could view your bookmarks, your reading list, your shared links. I've never mastered the reading list. 
I don't know if it's just me, but when that sidebar thing flies up, my first thought is, oh dear, let me get rid of that. So I think if you were to use it in a consistent way, you'd probably love it, but no. Um, but they also beefed up security with auto-generated random passwords and then shared them via iCloud keychain. That just annoys me because I use one password. I'm wondering if that can actually be completely nuked. I don't use Safari enough to be concerned greatly, to be honest, but it's very annoying. Um, now, they also removed more functionality, and this was um, the Open Transport API, which meant USB syncing of calendars, contacts, and other information to iOS devices was removed. What were people supposed to do? Well, iCloud, of course. I think of that more of a stick than a carrot, personally. But um, that was their idea. More on that in a moment. The biggest concern for me was it became a nightmare with my video workflow. QuickTime 10 no longer supported older, what they said were older video codecs. And it was converting things into the ProRes format when they were opened. The older video codecs could no longer be viewed in QuickLog. Now, the reason that that was a whole problem for me was what they didn't tell you was that the older video codecs, no, what they called the older video codecs were very good quality, but very small in file size. And this ProRes is massive. So I would have had a file prior to this that was maybe three gig. And that would be my full quality file. After when I had to, when I could no longer use these unsupported codecs anymore, I would have the same file and it would be 80 gig. That's not an improvement, but they've never changed their mind with that one. It also broke an entire workflow in ScreenFlow, but I got over it in the end. They also removed the ability to sync mobile iCloud notes if people had upgraded their phone from iOS 9 to 10. Idea was it would force you to update your computer. To say it got a lukewarm reception was an understatement. So much so, I like this bit. They had to bring it back in 10.9.3 and iTunes 11.2. <laughs> they added back the local sync options. So another example of Apple being ahead of the real world, I'm afraid. So what were our experiences? Well, it was downloaded much faster. So much better than Lion and Mountain Lion, which wouldn't have been difficult. I'm sure one of those took the majority of the day and half of the night. Mountain Lion was most insistent that it be updated, however. So um, I did copious backups, uh, finishing off with a target disk mode backup for just the final one. So I was belt braces and then some. But the most scary thing I heard was people whose systems automatically updated to Mavericks overnight. What? I mean, rule one, if any option has the word auto in it, turn it off straight away. I remember saying, not all there yet, but better than lion and mountain lion. Uh, one thing that annoyed me, Moom and any other system extension like toys needed explicitly authorising. So you needed to use the accessibility settings to control elements of the system. It, it was a pain, but it could be done. Uh, my main calamity was when the system preferences crashed because I couldn't find the accessibility options and they'd been moved to security and privacy, privacy accessibility. 
Then I struggle to get anything confirmed. So some things never change, as we've talked about. The worst thing was the list wasn't scrollable until you clicked another tab and then clicked back to that one. Now, I think that was to do with whether you had that option turned on. You know, the one that you have on that says always show scroll bars. Mm, yeah. But I have left at the default, which is hide them. Well, this is when it doesn't work. I have to switch to another tab to switch back to make it work. Nothing like a beta program for finding these little issues, is there, Apple? <clears throat> Just a point. Now, um, one thing that I mourned then and continue to mourn to this day is this was when I lost the ability to right click an app in the Mac App Store to copy the URL. It's a small thing, I know. And I know there is a drop down, but it's not as accurate. It's not as fast. It's not as easy. Small thing, but it still bothers me. It's going to continue to bother me, Apple. You might as well put it back. I'm going to go on and on until you do. Uh, it was also the OS where Apple started hiding the settings that I used most, specifically the display settings. Given what I do, I can change those numerous times a day. And the default, you know, when you go into system preferences displays, the default became a useless sliding scale. In the middle, it just says default. To the left, it says larger text and to the right, it says more space. What? I want to know what size the screen's going to be. Luckily, if you hold down the option key when you select scaled displays, it shows all the other choices. But that's not the point. It, that's not accessible. That's hidden. But at least the option's still there. I, I am just waiting for the day when they remove it completely. Uh, then there was the fiasco of the new iBooks app downloading all your books to a system folder deep within the library, taking oodles of disk space. Not satisfied with doing that, it renamed the books from something legible, so you would know which file was which, to just a random string of numbers. I remember blasting off three very long, detailed blog posts about that. Very, very unhappy. And they've, they've never really fixed it. I guess now books are in iCloud, massive air quotes, and it just works. Yeah, trust me, it didn't just work on Mavericks. It was horrible. My poor MacBook Air thought, what are you downloading here? There, there was just, I shouldn't have so many books, should I? Yeah, you see, you're all right if you've got two books. More than that, no. Then there was the um, farce of dragging icons out of the sidebar. Didn't they twang back and you needed to hold it in just the right way for it to disappear into a puff of smoke? I remember the puff of smoke. Don't remember how you hold it, though. Oh, you've got to be very careful how you hold it, trust me, or it didn't work at all. So, yeah, not, not great. As you can tell, I have fond memories of Mavericks. The wallpaper was an improvement over the old Legolces, though. High praise. It's the best I can do. Just in case you were wondering about the link between Mavericks and Top Gun in the show title. Tom Cruise's character in Top Gun was called Maverick. But then Mike had to go one better in the sharpshooting stakes. Explanation is necessary. Back in February 2017, we visited Alverston Hall Hotel in Cheshire. It was a weekend away, group of friends, about 50 of us. And there was activities on sites all day and half the night. Now, I was in the middle of my AS4050 biking challenge in aid of the church roof at the time, but I still managed to schedule in some of the sessions. And the first up was the archery. Never tried it before absolutely loved it. Could have done it all day. 
Next up was the shooting. Loved that too. Deep in the woods with a huge pellet-fed rifle, aiming at paper targets on trees, much to the relief of the cows in a distant field who'd observed the archery earlier with increasing alarm. Now, I was taking this very seriously and I was thrilled to get a bullseye. Mm, I was thrilled that you got a bullseye too. Yes, especially given I'd completely missed my own target and got the bullseye on yours. And given that I hadn't got anywhere near the target in three attempts? Point being, we loved it. And yes, I recovered myself and won the shooting overall. Top woman in the archery while I was at it. Roll forward six months, September 2017. We headed off for another extended weekend, this time in Harrogate. Hotel within the same group. So, archery and shooting it was again. I was ignoring the nervous looking sheep and we spent two days having a ball on the ranges. Now, tech played an important part in this visit too. The friends that were a couple of the friends who were with us visit an elderly lady locally every Sunday morning. Obviously, they were with us, so this week they weren't. Their daughter was going to see her though. Now the archer in the shooting conveniently coincided with the time of her visit. So we FaceTime both of them into the archery session. They got to watch the whole thing and I did a tour of the vicinity for the lady too and she was thrilled. She told everybody she saw for weeks that she'd taken part in the fun of the weekend. That's when you have got to love tech. But back to the archery, it was a very tense in, in the competition. It was down to the final three. And the final three, the top three, were all in the last group. Two guys and me holding up the lady's end. It actually went down to the very last arrow, which was mine. And I won. The bloke sulked off back to the bar while I collected my prize. And in all my attempts to hit the target in the shooting, I failed miserably. But the local wildlife was much fitter from repeated attempts to avoid your errant shots, though. And we were sad to leave. We were first to book for the February trip to Bottlewidden Castle in Wales. First out on the range on day one and the archery was fabulous. What you mean is you won again? Actually, I did. But I'm sure I'd have enjoyed it just as much if I hadn't. You keep telling yourself that, girl. As I was saying, next up was the shooting on a new range. It was longer than either of the other ones we'd tried. Yeah, didn't bode well for me hitting anything this time either. Very true. I went first. Not too shabby result as the targets were returned to us for perusal. Then I took up position. And I took up a position of safety six feet behind him with an iPhone in my hand for some candid photos. So, I took careful aim, I fired, and I definitely heard the metallic click of pellet on plate. I'd actually hit the target. You had indeed. And that wasn't all you hit, was it? No, dear. No, dear indeed. Your first shot on target in 19 months was a doozy. Straight through the paper target, off the back plate, and ricocheted straight into my shoulder. Yes, Macbiters. He shot me. It wasn't intentional. I know it wasn't. You couldn't hit the broadside of a barn with intention. But it didn't mean I wasn't sporting some shrapnel of alarming proportions in my shoulder, though, did it? No, dear. Of more significance, it only just missed me. And me. Oh, don't worry about me, anybody, will you? You know, the one he actually did hit. Mm, you were fine. Oh yes, I was fine once we dug the shrapnel out. My shoulder had a bruise the size of a dinner plate on it though, and a divot not much smaller when the said detritus was removed. Our friends were just relieved I hadn't shot you with a bow and arrow. Oh yes, they'd had the fortuitous wisdom to go on a road trip to the coast for the afternoon. I'd promised an update on whether I'd won the competition again as soon as we'd done. 
but it was over an hour later by the time I managed to update them on the goings-on. So the text I sent arrived, and you know on the home screen it truncates. It was truncated too, won the archery and the shooting, but Mike shot me. So the lady was reading it out as her husband was driving. She started calmly enough. They finished the archery and shooting. Elaine won again. Oh my God, he shot her. The husband said, what? She said, Mike. The husband said, Mike, what? She said, Mike shot Elaine. So the husband was like, what the actual? We only left him for a couple of hours. So without the benefit of the full text, they had visions of me wandering around, sporting an arrow in the style of an extra from a Robin Hood film. Hence the title of the show. Although it was actually much less dead-eyed dick and more Mr. Magoo. Can I sing now? Please don't. <laughs> it was. I've Googled it. Right, I'll accept. What What was the song? You've lost that loving feeling. That'll do. That's Whoa, near it. That no! No! Big, that, big that, no! Leg. That is just about as in tune as you ever get. Move along. Move You've along. Lost that loving... Okay, I'll... I'll move on. Bento, Good But Gone, or series of um, Good But Guns. Bento. Bento was a database app for the Mac. It was made by FileMaker and it was announced in public preview on the 13th of November 2007. And it launched officially on the 8th of January 2008. And it was announced sunsetting. We haven't said that for a while, have we? Sunsetting. No, sunsetting. It was announced sunsetting on the 31st of July 2013. And it died on the 30th of September, 2013. Pause. Minute <laughs> silence. Don't laugh. Sorry. No, it was very sad. It was. Well, it was for those that used it. There was much outcry in the Mac community about its demise. I think, you know, they were trying to push people towards FileMaker Pro. Oh, come on. It's ludicrous to think that people would switch to FileMaker. It's hideously expensive. It's activated. There's limited installs and it's updated every five minutes at huge cost. The only deals seem to be for multiple licenses and it's way more powerful. And because of that, completely complex compared to Bento. Bento users just wouldn't want it or need it. Trust me. Back in my Windows days, I built a few databases with access. Things like contacts, music collection, software licenses. And of course, on the Mac, when I moved over there, there's 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 apps for that. You've got iTunes, you've got 1Password, etc, etc. So those things kind of no requirement for anymore. And my, my database requirements are simple. Uh, as an example... Uh, I have a list of training sessions, uh, date, topic, client, etc. And I use Excel, stores the data. I can sort, I can filter, I can produce simple reports with pivot tables. Now, I appreciate that my situation might be different to your situation. Maybe you do need a simple but powerful database. If you do, I recommend that you check out tap forms. I wrote a blog post about it a while back. I'll put a link in the show notes. I'm assuming that the MacBiters are more like me and probably hate Excel with a passion that knows no bounds. But I digress. <clears throat> Not keen on Excel. Does its own thing. Don't, don't talk to me about Excel and dates. Just no, never. 
Well, I did use Bento and I loved it. I thought it was a fantastic little app because it had such tight integration with both Addressbook and iCal. So if you remember way back in the day, I mean, now you expect things to talk to each other. But back then, that kind of integration was very unusual and it was fantastic. You could link to your calendar from your database, which you could then use for maybe appointments. You, know, you, could, you, could, you could put an appointment in the database, but pull in a contact list from the address book and then schedule it in iCal. It was fantastic. There were some great templates and I used it in a bit of a specific way. I had two main databases. One was very specific for a website I created and it listed all the projects undertaken by a specific actor because I needed to have at least two independent sources verifying each role and I needed to track that information. So I called it a proofs database. So that one, I doubt anybody else would have any need for that. The second database was more generic than that. Um, it arose from a run-in with my filing cabinet. From memory, I adapted a system from a concept in a book that I read years ago. Um, this book was, had been recommended to me. It was written by sisters called Pam Young and Peggy Jones. If you've never read it, 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 it reads like a comedy. It's called Sidetracked Home Executives from Pig Pen to Paradise. Uh, there was another one called Get Your Act Together, but they were all to do with organising and they are some of the funniest books I have ever read. But the principle was organising stuff that was difficult to deal with. So think paperwork, instruction manuals, guarantee certificates, other detritus. It is difficult to manage and organise because you've got physical problems with it, the different sizes, different access requirements, some that you use frequently, others you hardly ever look at. You know, the one to change the clock on the cooker twice a year. How do you file those? How do you put like with like? Do you do it by category? And what makes sense at the point of filing never seems to make sense when you come to look for it. Now, you might be wondering how on earth a digital system can be used to manage physical stuff. And the key is to create a digital index. You just file the stuff physically and you just number it. So I would have a series of folders. Um, for me, it would have been instructions. And I had these folders and they were just numbered INS for instructions dash 001, 002, 003. What it actually is doesn't matter because you're going to use the digital tool to create the index. And the index links the reference number of the folder with a description of the physical contents of the folder. So I used it to index the entire contents of my filing cabinet and I was completely organized. Now, the best thing was as I scanned the contents of the folders and gradually went paperless, I could use the same system and it became a hybrid system, part indexed physical content and part digital content. And that was what I used Bento for. Then I had a problem because Bento went away. So I transferred it to DevonThink Pro Office. Um, initially, there was no mobile access, which was almost a showstopper. But that was fixed with DevonThink to go iOS app. And creating that index would actually have worked in a spreadsheet which I think at one point I said to you, how about this? But that wouldn't have given me the benefit of the system that I've got in DevonThink where I can actually put the digital content in those folders. Um, Bento was a bit strange. It managed four releases in five years. Now, do you remember the shambles when version two was released? No, not at all. Oh, it was worse than the Tweetbot outcry. Version one of Bento was released in January 2008 and version two followed in October. 2008. 
so nine months later. There was no update reduction at all. It required a full price repurchase, and that was the only option if you wanted to upgrade. Now, FileMaker responded that they were using the same pricing model as other companies' products, such as Apple's iWork and iLife Suites. Bento was priced at $49 for a single license or $99 for a family pack of five licenses. And they claimed there was always the option not to upgrade, though. Really? No, not really. Because within days, this was November the 25th, so literally within days, FileMaker made an official statement that they would discontinue revisions and bug fixes for the version 1 product. So resistance has ever proved futile. In fact, it seemed there was always a funny story when Bento got updated. One update literally just appeared. There was no mail, no mention, no tweet, nothing. I just downloaded it and thought, what's going on? When I came to install it, got on with it, it's a, it's a new version. So I posted a harmless tweet, which from memory incited a night of fast-flowing tweets about whether, whether there was or wasn't a new version of Bento out. So they could have been a little bit clearer with that. So Bento is a great app if a checkered history and there's no real replacement although there are some options to take a look at as i said take a look at tap forms if you have a need and you could of course have a look at devon think pro office it's not cheap but it's an amazing amazing app so from an app that died to one that grows in popularity with each release screenflow Yes, hot on the heels of the release of Camtasia 2018 a few weeks ago, the annual update to ScreenFlow. And it was exactly a year to the day since version 7 was released. I had a sneak peek prior to release, which I was very grateful for. It meant I was able to write a detailed review on the day of release and do a live stream demoing all the new features too. And there were lots of them, several extremely useful. And these were pro-level productivity enhancements, and I wasn't expecting that. Not after stuff like partial screen recording had been trumpeted in previous versions. I expected that all the new features would be aimed at new screencasters rather than veterans. So there was one very happy bunny here. So what was new? Well, I made a list. Uh, number one, screen to be recorded indicator. One of the first things that you'll notice, but until this version, there was no indication of which screen would be recorded when you clicked record. It was only when you clicked record that you found out the screen that was being recorded wasn't the right one. Now, I've got three monitors and it became an issue. The more monitors you have, the more of an issue this is. And it's Apple's fault. My monitors, the two that hang off, one on the right, one on the left, are randomly renamed on reboot. So initially, it could be this is monitor one on the left, monitor two is on the right. And the next day, because I've rebooted, the other way around. There's, there was literally no way to tell them. So what they've done is they've added this feature, solved the problem by displaying a red frame at the point of screen selection. So when you click the drop down to select the screen, it puts a red border around the screen. It doesn't stay there, it doesn't get recorded, but it is incredibly useful. That's a good one for me, I like that. Probably won't have as much need as you with your three monitors, but I'd use it. Number two, templates. Can I just say, finally, Telestream have come round to my way of thinking. We now have the benefit of consistent content on the timeline. And this implementation actually goes further than that. Now, to explain that, I need to talk about point three, which is placeholders. 
Placeholders live inside your templates. So to fully explain templates, I have to talk about placeholders. These placeholders, there's three types of them. You can have a placeholder for screen capture, camera capture and iOS device capture. Now, you are allowed to put one of each type on a timeline inside a template. Now, to use a template, you select it at the point of recording. When you've recorded, the relevant content type is captured and added to the placeholders on the timeline. And those placeholders expand and contract accordingly. It is such a huge time saver. Now, even more than that, the placeholders at the point of creating the template can have any formatting available within ScreenFlow applied to them before the actual footage is captured. So think of it as green screen video being pre-chroma keyed. Ooh, we like that. Now, what I'm talking about is you add the placeholder for where you want the camera footage and you apply a chroma key at that point before you've even thought about what you're recording. That is amazing. That is amazing. Yeah, great time saver if you're making video courses. I'll give that one a thumbs up too. I would say the only thing with it is, and I understand why they've done it, but it's great for titles for me at the beginning. But I tend to put static stuff at the end as well. And it for it to be moved... For it to be in the right place, if you're with me, it would have to be on the same track as the placeholder content. Because if it's slightly above it, because you're fading one into the other, it won't move and you'll end up with big gaps or just basically it will be in the wrong place. So it, you would have to, you would be wise to rethink how you put your videos together. I will say it as, as, as far as that. But yes, absolutely great time saver. Which leads me into another one, which is styles. We're up to number four. Um, any and all of the changes made to elements on the timeline can be saved as styles. It doesn't matter whether it's text, images, recordings, doesn't matter. All of it can be saved as styles. And those styles can be instantly applied to other elements on the timeline. Now, for productivity, that not only is huge, I think it's actually potentially even better than templates. What do you think? Very impressive, that one. Great for consistency. Guess what? Another thumbs up. Oh, you're enjoying this so far, aren't you? Mm. Yeah, that, we're, we're keener than we were on the last one. Well done, Telestream. Right, number five. Yeah, I think it's all about to fall apart. They added an extra type of annotation called freehand. I doubt anyone has a steady enough hand to make a good use of this. This is not a good idea. But it's there. And will I be using it? No. No, I wouldn't use that one either. I struggle with lining stuff up, much less actually drawing with it. Exactly. Number six, Stock Media Library. Now, this one is of much more use. It's a subscription-based service. Don't run away screaming. It's extremely competitively priced. If you recall, TechSmith had a similar subscription service in Camtasia, the very latest version, and that was $200 a year. Well, Telestream have made their version of this available for just $60 a year. Now, the service is licensed by Telestream and they're saying that the content from it comes from three sources and that the content is continually evolving. So what's there today will be supplemented by things added throughout the lifetime of your subscription. 
It's searchable, it's filterable. You can filter by type, quality, even colour. What I did was I, I did a search for keyboard and I, I wanted to test how many piano keyboards I got versus computer keyboards. And I wasn't disappointed, there were lots of them. But I did find a computer keyboard. And then I went over to Camtasia and I did the same search and I got exactly the same content. It was the same image, it was the same video clip. So although they haven't named these three sources, there must be some overlap because the same thing was available from both of them. But for one of them, you'll be paying $200 a year and for the other, it was $60 a year. Yeah, it's definitely worth the money for me. I probably get more use at work, to be honest. Yeah, because my stuff's screen recording, I don't automatically think, oh, I need a picture of a sizzling burger or I need video of a said sizzling burger. But actually, I think moving forward, if you were to put together a promotion for an event, you would have need for that kind of content, maybe. Maybe not a sizzling burger, but something similar. Um, and the only other alternative for services where you're paying for each individual clip. Now, I've already got access to a couple of stock libraries, but I don't think you can ever have too much stock, can you? So, no, definitely I would go for that. Next, number seven, track thumbnails. Now, this was one of those really why bother features when I read the feature list. Then I saw it on the timeline. Hmm. Actually, it's very useful. Uh, you can configure it. So don't freak out. But basically, at the moment, the default is you have one of your video tracks and there's a thumbnail on the left hand side, just the one that represents the entire track. The default now is that you get a full track of thumbnails. But as I say, it can be configured and your options are to have that full track of thumbnails, to turn them off completely or to just have that single thumbnail as in the previous versions. My first thought was to turn it off completely because I'd done that previously. I found I didn't like the thumbnail obscuring the title, which is in text virtually in the same place. But actually, somehow they've made this work and I actually think it is quite useful. Mm, not for me, this one. One thumbnail's enough. I don't think I'd go back to one thumbnail. I think if I was to turn it off, I would just turn it off. But anyway, uh, number eight. Detach the timeline. Now, this was another why bother feature initially, until I remembered a video that would benefit enormously from it. What the feature's talking about is, ScreenFlow usually has a single window interface. You can open up multiple windows, but you get a different timeline in each one, a different video in each one. The new feature allows the timeline at the bottom of the window to be separated from the rest of the window. Now, the idea being that you would be able to place them on two separate screens. Now, that would be more useful the more tracks you have, which was why it made me think of this one particular video. And it was a video where I was cutting between image after image after image, but one was fading into the next and so forth. And to make it simple, I kind of laddered them up the track list just for simplicity's sake. I could have done the one on track one, one on two, one on one, one on two, one on one. But it, it just visually, it was like, which one show? What am I doing? So I decided to, to go upwards. And then I had the problem, of course, that I'd had to stretch the timeline up to such a degree so I could see it, that my preview was really tiny. And this feature solves that problem entirely. Do I see myself using it with every video? No. To be honest, no. But if I had 
that particular type of video where I would benefit from seeing 15 tracks, then I probably would use it. Yeah, I can see the benefit, like you say, if you've got a lot of tracks um, and you, you, you don't want the preview to be small, but I probably won't use it myself. My biggest problem with it would be if I did that, I might get used to looking at another screen mm. for the preview. I think you just get used to it. I'm, I'm thinking about Affinity Designer for iPad. One of the strange decisions when I picked it up was the way they've implemented the undo. And I, I just couldn't get used to it. And now I'm trying to use their method of undo on all the other apps on my iPad. You do get used to it that fast. If something is a benefit to you, you do get used to it that fast. So because of the way I work, I try to keep everything to just a few tracks. So I don't see myself needing it a lot, but I'm glad it's there just in case I do. Anyway, number nine, YouTube custom thumbnail. When you upload a video to YouTube, you can add an image to be used as a poster frame for it. And the usual process is to either select one of the three that YouTube just randomly chooses. They just proffer you three frames. Sometimes, no, just don't go anywhere near them. They're just random and they're horrible. Your other option is to upload your own file manually. Now, it doesn't take long, but it is a separate process. Now, the screen flow option does allow for both of those options. You can scrub through a video to locate a suitable frame, or you can add the custom thumbnail from a file on your Mac into ScreenFlow, and then ScreenFlow will upload it to YouTube. So nice attention to detail, I think. Yeah, not for me because I don't upload straight to YouTube. I don't either, to be honest, because I like to control the way that my video is processed. I, so, I, so I export out at full quality and then I twiddle with it later elsewhere. So I do tend to upload manually to YouTube. But, you know, for quick videos, I could see myself doing that. Number 10, YouTube scheduled uploads. Now, this is a new feature of YouTube. Um, your video actually gets uploaded. So it's exactly the same as doing an export to YouTube. But at the point that you're setting the options for it, you specify a scheduled date and time for the video to be made live. Now, this is sort of ahead of itself at the moment, because what it's doing at the moment is creating a private video that will have its settings made public and thus be available for viewing at a set date and time. But YouTube are in the middle of rolling out a new feature called premiering, premiering content. And the idea of that is that the content creator uploads the video, sends out a mail to their people, their, their tribe, telling them that this content will be available for premiere at a certain time. And the content creator will sit there and watch it with them as in a film premiere. So this would enable that. Now, at the moment, there's only a select handful got this premiering option. So what it can do for everybody else is just make a private video that automatically gets made public at a certain time. Now, I did actually use that feature, but I didn't use it from within here. So just in case you're wondering, it does actually work. I had a complete calamity of which I will talk shortly. And to fix the problem later, I used that scheduling feature and it did actually work. So handy if you need it, I think. Mm, another one not for me. Uh, as I said before, don't load straight up to YouTube. OK, so number 11, quick narration. Now, it's not unusual to need to record additional narration during the editing stage. And in previous versions, you would have needed to record into a new ScreenFlow file. Now, that wasn't for me. I used a whole different workflow. But there was no way with your 
file on the screen, the one that you were editing, should just quickly record audio into it. It didn't work like that. And they've added it. So there is now an option that you can place your playhead at a certain point, make space for some audio and click record and just record straight into it. Will I be doing that? No, because I've got this whole other workflow going on. But it's hand again, it's, it's handy there to have it. Yeah, another one not for me. And finally, voiceover additions onto a fun feature. If you don't fancy doing the narration, ScreenFlow can support you in getting macOS accessibility speech voices to read it for you. More work for me, you mean? Pretty much, yes. I actually watched a YouTube video about Excel a while back and it had the American Siri voice narrating it. You know, I couldn't take it at all seriously. All I could think of was Lady Siri narrating it. Moonlighting were you? What can I say? The money was good. Well, there's a few other smaller changes. Um, there's an addition of an arrange menu that gives you the ability to align and distribute stuff. That should have been there years ago, but at least it's there now and it works great. Now, the upgrade's complicated. The upgrade from version 7, and I'm presupposing at this point, not the Mac App Store, leave that alone. The upgrade from version 7 is $39 or £39. It's $10 more to upgrade from version 6. So that's $49 or pounds. The full price being $129 pounds. But in the Mac App Store, there's no upgrade price at all. What they do is they make it cheaper for the first 48 hours. But I noticed that they didn't send an email out telling you of that. I think you, you did get it from the Mac App Store, didn't you? I got it from the Mac App Store, yeah. And as long as it's within that first, I think the first 24 hours, it was £39. One question that's come up in hindsight by people is they were concerned that they wouldn't qualify for this £60 stroke dollars subscription for the assets if they bought through the Mac App Store. But you do. The difference is if you buy it direct, you're paying your money straight to Telestream. And that includes a subscription that's on auto renew for the assets. If you buy via the App Store, you pay Apple for your subscription and it auto renews via your Apple ID. Now, that means there is money to be saved, because if you put your Apple, if you get your Apple money through vouchers and you get 15 to 20 percent off, then you are saving money overall. Obviously, though, if you don't want to pay the full, if, you know, if you've got another version, you're trying to upgrade it and you don't want to pay the full price for the app, then you've got problems with that. The other thing that struck me was, what do you do if you've got a version in the App Store and you would like a version direct from Telestream, you can do that. You can transfer from the Mac App Store over to the direct version. And what they'll ask you for is proof of purchase of the Mac App Store version. And for that, you'll need a screen capture. Not a problem. What do they do if you've subscribed via the App Store for the 12 month subscription, though? And that I don't have an answer to. So when you're thinking about buying, think about it carefully because there's quite a few ramifications with it. So um, mine's direct, yours is from the App Store, but then you're not overly concerned about assets at the moment, are you? No. And it would be a little bit cheaper for the assets anyway. But it was one of those apps that, despite having Camtasia, was an instant buy for me. And me. Next job, to do a head-to-head -head feature comparison between ScreenFlow 8 and Camtasia 2018. Watch this space. One more footnote to the ScreenFlow 8 release as well. Oh, yes, involving Wirecast. You may recall the great Wirecast update story when version 8 was released in October last year. 
followed swiftly by version 9 in April this year. Well, on the same day that ScreenFlow 8 was released, they released Wirecast 10. Let's say that that compulsory purchase of their maintenance agreement, ensuring free updates for 12 months, is looking a wiser move by the day. So you're glad you spent the money? It, it wasn't an option, but in hindsight, yes. Anyway, onward. If you missed the Affinity Designer for iPad session, fear not, the video is now available. Now, I managed to squeeze a ton of features into the demos, and all this despite the most trying of circumstances, thanks to YouTube which threw its toys firmly out of the pram and refused point-blank to broadcast anything. I had a backup plan, though. Adobe Connect. Yes, if you recall, the demo was Affinity, the arch-nemesis of Adobe. The show has to go on, though, and I'm happy to report Connect did play along. I had to upload the video from the local recording after the event. All in a day's work, but seriously, I could do without it, YouTube. Anyway, thanks to all who came along. I hope you found my calamitous night entertaining as well as informative. And when I mentioned that uploading the video thing and scheduling it, that's when I used it. Because I'd intended to broadcast, couldn't do that. So I had this local recording and I wanted to send out an email at the same time as the video went live. And I, even I can't do two things at once in that way. So I had it go live at a certain time and I had the email sent out at a certain time. And that actually worked. Unusually, something worked. Amazing. Let's first finish on a positive note. Yes, let's. Well, that's it for this episode of MacBytes. As always, we'd love to hear from you. Send your questions, comments and queries by email to macbytesuk at gmail.com. Sign up for the newsletter at macbytes.co.uk. Follow MacBytes on Twitter at twitter.com slash macbytes. Follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash thomas mike you can follow me at twitter.com slash elaine giles and you can follow me at twitter.com slash macbytesiri so until the next time this has been mike and elaine bringing you macbytes goodbye goodbye and see you next time this is exhausting what are you doing i'm packing for the cruise next holiday good grief man what's in the trunk only the essentials for the next trip away it's huge I know, but trust me it's all needed. Just use the list from last time, what's exhausting about that? That isn't going to work this time. Why not? I need to make sure Elaine's safe. So what's in there then? Tin hat, check. Flak jacket, check. Bulletproof vest, check. Riot shield, check. You don't need all that, I've got everything we need to ensure Elaine's safety right here. In that tiny bag? There's barely enough room and therefore a bikini. O.M.G. Tell me you don't have a bikini in there. No I don't, but what I have is even more effective than everything you've packed. It can't be. I assure you it is. What's in there then? I have a straight jacket. How will wearing that keep Elaine safe when Action Man gets going again? She won't be the one wearing it, Mike will. You're a genius woman. Problem solved.